Good morning, church. So great to be with you here this morning. As we wrap up our series on the life of David, it's been uh, uh, just a really meaningful journey through his life, and we're going to kind of, it's going to bring it to a culmination this morning, and I'm really excited to share with you. Um, We live in a, a country in a place that is full of dreams and aspirations. Some of us were taught that, uh, you know, we could be anything we wanted to be when we grew up. Uh, many of us uh, have a sense that there's, there's more out there to, to achieve, to, to gain in life. And, and, and I think all of us have some kind of, of hope or vision for what we hope our lives will become, the kind of people that will become, the kind of things that we'll get to do. We want lives of, of happiness, popularity, power, wealth, purpose, impact. We want to make a difference in some way, live towards something greater than ourselves. The, the problem is that, that it, it's often at the end of things, we kind of look back and we end up caring about something different. Uh, Bronnie Ware, she's an Australian nurse, spent several years kind of uh, with patients in the last 12 weeks of their lives and, and did an observational study just with them, kind of taking note of the biggest regrets in, in their lives. And these are just five quick things that, that she, uh, categories of regret that she found. The first is, I wish I'd had the, the courage to live a life true to myself, not the lives that others expected of me. And this was by far the, the, the biggest thing, that living into other people's expectations as opposed to um, my own, or, or even, as well, this morning, God's. The second one, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. I wish I hadn't worked so hard. This is one that, for men, this was, was a predominant one. That there, there seemed to be a, a, a wastefulness of, man, I, I spent way too much things on, on the things that don't matter in life, or matter less in life. Third one, I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings, to share with people how I really felt, not be passive, not to, to bury it, but to really just be myself and share how things impact me. The fourth one, I wish that I had stayed in touch with my friends to prioritize the close relationships, the close friendships. And then lastly, I wish that I had let myself be happier, that I would have focused on the things, uh, you know, the attitude of gratitude to not let certain things get me down. Those are the, the five general categories. And whether you resonate with one of those or multiple of them or you have your own different ones that you might add to that list, we all have these things that, that you know, looking forward, like, man, I hope that I don't have major regrets when it's my time to go. But the reality is we probably will have certain things. The question is, what will those things be? We all have questions like, why am I here? What am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to be? Who am I supposed to be? How will I be remembered? But what happens when you just get that sense that your life is headed in a direction that you don't want it to go, where the end kind of destination is not the destination you want or envisioned yourself to be headed towards? As I said, we've, we've been in this series on the life of, of David the last seven weeks, and our theme verse has come from 1 Samuel 16. It just kind of reminds us that, that God uh, looks at the heart while the world looks at the things of, of the outside, outward appearance. And so when it comes to these ideas of, of what will we be remembered by, what kind of regrets are we going to bring to the end of our, our lives, what is the legacy that we're going to be leaving We want to ask, what is the direction of your life? What are you giving your life to, your life and your legacy? And how do you want to leave this world? 
But as we do, as we wrestle through those questions, we might also say, what does God have to say about these things? More importantly, what is he looking at? What is his desire for you and I in life and legacy? That's what we're going to be spending time with this morning. Before we dive into our text, if you want to open your Bibles, we're going to be starting in 2 Samuel 6, so you can open with me there if you'd like. But I want to recap kind of where we've been with David, this, this guy we've been spending time with the last few weeks. And we kind of started just that it was an unlikely choice that he was anointed as the least of all his brothers, anointed as the promised and coming king. He was chosen by God. We saw him face a a seemingly invincible opponent in Goliath and yet still uh, trust in and give credit to the living God, Yahweh. We saw him wrestle through and and deal with the jealousy of of his predecessor, King Saul, who would constantly want to to kill him and and, and get him out, out of the way, knowing that he was the one anointed to follow him. We saw him gain fame and power and a measure of success in the midst of some minor things of brokenness, and he finally inherits the throne, which is when things go really wrong, and he commits egregious sins against Bathsheba and against God, and yet he still, even in the midst of all that, chooses to return to God in confession and repentance, and is still known as a man after God's own heart. And so this morning, we're going to kind of look at a couple different snapshots. We're going to look at the end of David's life, And so I want you to to imagine with me that this old man who's failing in age and he's he's on his deathbed and he's thinking back over all of his life, the things that went well, the things that went bad, the regrets and the joys, and he's just looking back. And I want to take us to a few different places, some things that are probably on the mind and heart of David this morning. The first one is this in 2 Samuel 6. For surely, David would have remembered God's promise to him. We we mentioned this a few weeks ago, but I want to come back to it and spend a little more time with it. God's promise to him. 2 Samuel 6, starting in verse 12. When the Ark of the Covenant was being brought into Jerusalem, that's what's taking place here. Now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the Ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, which is basically underwear, David was dancing before the Lord with, with all of his might. While he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets on his deathbed, David would re- remembering the day when when the ark, which rep- it was the presence of God with the people, bringing brought into the, the city of kings, the city of David, returning and with joy he's celebrating and dancing as he, he enters into Jerusalem. When's the last time you danced for joy? When's the last time you danced for joy before the Lord, for the sake of the Lord? You know, for me, it's been a really, really long time because I'm, I'm not very good at dancing. I really, see, the thing about dancing is you, to be good at it, you kind of have to be willing to look, look really bad and, and, and have people make fun of you. It's kind of this, this chasm of I'm a bad dancer and I'm a good dancer and in between is making look like a fool. And my pride is just too much to, to, to cross that chasm. And, and there is one song that, you know, when weddings, one song will get me out on the dance floor, um, but that's about it. And I'm not going to tell you t- uh, this morning which one it is. And uh, you, don't ask my wife because she probably will tell you. 
But David would have remembered in his death the, the joy of the presence of God returning to Jerusalem and, and celebrating that. And, and then the following day after that, God is pleased, and this is when he, reveal, he reveals his covenant promise, his faithfulness to David. In the next chapter, 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 12, it's kind of a summary of this. God promises, when your days, David, are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so God is promising. This is one of five covenants in the Old Testament, the significant covenants of God's people leading and culminating in Jesus. And, and he is promising that through you, David, through your lineage, I will uh, establish a kingdom and, and build a house. And David would have remembered this moment and, and said, man, God is good. And he promised me that through, even though I'm failing on my bed, that, that God has promised this of me and of my descendants. Of course, as David is lying there, he also would remember the sins that he has committed, the things that should have changed everything, his sins with Bathsheba, the murder of her husband, the sins that God should have, could have pointed at and said, you broke this covenant, and so I, I'm removing myself from this. But, but God is, is faithful, Yahweh is faithful despite the unfaithfulness of David, and so even then... On his deathbed, he, he's clinging to the faithfulness of Yahweh in the midst of, of what is so much struggle and stress and, and hardship and brokenness that he is seeing. He's clinging to the promises of, of God. Which brings us to, to a second picture that would have been more nearer in memory to, to David. There's a lot of, of craziness that we, we just didn't have time to, to handle in this, this series. But, but because of his sin and brokenness, there was lots of consequences. And a lot of those manifested through his sons. One of those sons was Adonijah, who at the time, towards the end of his life, he's on his death, he claimed to be king. He said, I, I am king now. He, he took up. Uh, kingship from David as, as David was, was failing. His previous, David's previous military leader, leader at the same time, Joab, turned on him and, and the priestly leader, uh, Abiathar, also began supporting both of those individuals. And it's around this time, it's actually in 1 Kings, where, where Bathsheba comes to David and says, hey, you need to make Solomon, you need to anoint Solomon as the rightful heir to make him king. And she convinces David, and this is what we read in 1 Kings 1, verses 32 to 40. King David said, Call on Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah son of Jehoiada. When they came before the king, he said to them, Take your Lord's ser servants with you and have Solomon my son mount my own mule and take him down to Gihon. There have Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel, blow the trumpet and shout, Long live King Solomon. Then you are to go up with him, and he is to come and sit on my throne and reign in my place. I have appointed him ruler over Israel and Judah. Skipping down to verse 38. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah son of Jehoiada, the Carathites and the Pelathites went down and had Solomon mount King David's mule, and they escorted him to Gihon. Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the sacred tent and anointed Solomon. Then they sounded the trumpet, and all the people shouted, Long live King Solomon! And all the people went up after him, playing pipes and rejoicing greatly, so that the ground shook with the sound. David would have remembered this moment fondly. 
Let's throw up a picture. This is a picture of, of what Jerusalem may have been like from archaeology. It's a lot bigger now. My wife and I were able to spend some time this past summer in Jerusalem, and we were able to see some, some different ruins and stuff. But this is probably something of what it would look like. And we have David's palace where he's, he's, he's holed up because he's getting old, and it's also not very safe to leave. And then uh, he, he's saying, bring Solomon up the Kidron Valley into Gahon, around Gahon, and come in this and anoint him there. And so, so Solomon is, is riding on his mule, his, his royal mule, all the way up. And then he's, he enters here, and then he's anointed. And then everyone says, uh, long live King Solomon. And, and, and the, the shouting would have been heard from the palace, and David would be remembering, probably looking from his, his window, and said, that's my son whom, whom I love, and, and, and anointing him. A fond memory. This one, this king on a mule, he's the true king, not Adonijah. Joab is not the military power. It rests in the hands of Solomon. And he would have rested easily knowing that his kingdom, his legacy, would now be passed on through Solomon. That God's promises would be fulfilled in he hoped the life of Solomon. And it's at this point we read in Scripture the, the final words of David. In 2 Samuel 23, verses 1 through 7, the kind of a form of a psalm or, or a prayer, says this. These are the last words of David, the inspired utterance of David, son of Jesse, the utterance of the man exalted by the Most High, the man anointed by the God of Jacob, the hero of Israel's songs. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, when one rules over people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like a light of morning on, at, at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. If my house were not right with God, surely he would not have made an, with me an everlasting covenant arranged and secured in every part. Surely he would not bring to fruition my salvation and grant me my every desire. But evil men are all to be cast aside like thorns which are not gathered with the hand. Whoever touches thorns uses a tool of iron or the shaft of a spear. They are burned up where they lie. These are David's final words. And so three quick takeaways from this. He it's mentioned that he's the man exalted by the Most High, the man anointed by the God of Jacob. It's just saying here, David is acknowledging as he, he continually comes back to, I'm a nobody who God lifted up. God chose me, anointed me, but I didn't earn this. This is what God did in my life. And so when you look at your life now or, or when you look back on your life in, in the future, is it going to be about what you have done, the legacy you have created, or is it going to be what God has done in your life and the legacy he has created through you. It's not about the kind of legacy David left on his own, but the kind of legacy that God built by grace through him. The second thing, he, he, David mentions when, when one rules over people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of the Lord, he's like a light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. This is, you know, it's springtime. It's getting, you know, nicer outside. I'm so excited. It's, you know, birding season, the spring migration. And it's just like this, this time where it's like, man, whenever, whenever someone rules in fear, the fear of God and in righteousness, it's, a, it's like a beautiful spring morning. 
And David's just acknowledging, I, I tried to do, to rule, to reign in the fear of the Lord. I tried to do my best. And, and, you know, I didn't do it perfectly. We know that. We've read that. He didn't do it perfectly. But he always returned to the Lord. And, and just acknowledging that when he is aligned with Yahweh and the blessings of Yahweh through, uh, flow through him to the people. And that is also true of us. If whenever we are aligned with God, then his blessings can flow through us to those who are around us when we live in the fear, the reverence of God. And then lastly, that piece of David's final words, he says, if my house were not right with God, surely he would not have made with me an everlasting covenant. Arranged and secured in every part, surely he would not. Bring to fruition my salvation and grant me my every desire. He, he's saying the grace of God is, is so great. He has established this in spite of myself, in spite of my brokenness, my unfaithfulness. God has done the work. And, and it's really not just about me. It's about the salvation of God for all people that he will work through me and the covenant he's promised. And, and to look forward to that. He, he knew, he realized that, that this was bigger than just him. It, it wasn't going to come to fruition through his life, he was about ready to die. But he trusted that God was faithful, would be faithful to his promises in spite of himself. And so, in this moment, the man after God's own heart, King David, draws his last breath and dies. And though David's legacy is often remembered as being the greatest king of Israel, in reality, that's not even saying much because of all the kings that were so wicked and, and bad and, and his hope that Solomon would, would, would carry on and fulfill the promises of God. Solomon ended up being just as bad, if not worse, as David in, in many, many areas. So there's a brokenness to his legacy. But what might we take from his story? that he trusted in God's faithfulness, regardless of his own. He died believing, trusting that God would not fail in his covenant promises. And the truth is that that faithfulness wouldn't look like anything David had imagined it would look. It's not about what David's envisioned and desired legacy was, but rather what was God's desired legacy, his vision through David. And so as we wrap up this series and as we wrap up our time with David, we turn our eyes to where we should always turn our eyes to Jesus, to Jesus. And this is where we get to have a little fun and tie all this together, jumping forward hundreds of years. The answer to God's promise to David is, is reflected, is shown in, in Matthew 21, starting in verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed him. He had told them to go grab a donkey. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered the city of David, Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this man? 
Who is this man? Hosanna to the son of David. Let's reset the stage here. Jesus is, is nearing the end of his, his three-year ministry. He's carrying the weight of expectation and the visions and dreams of the people. Everyone thinks, expects, hopes, believes that he is the Messiah, that he is God's chosen one, the one who would liberate the Jews from the oppressive Roman Empire, one that would come and make all things right, the one who God had promised through, through David. And we remember that this morning is actually traditionally Palm Sunday, the, the, the entryway into Holy Week that leads us to Easter, Good Friday, and, and Easter later on this Week. It's the, it's the Sunday we celebrate the triumphal entry that we just read, the, the arrival of Jesus. Let's throw the, the, this picture back on, on the screen. This is Jerusalem. This is Jesus. And, and he, on, on a donkey, he rides the same pathway of Solomon and, and of David. And, and s- celebration ensues. And he, he, he is the true son of David. And he is the anointed one who is the coming king. And he enters into Jerusalem triumphantly. And his father is saying, this is the son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And and Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises, the covenant promises that God promised to David. And he enters. He is not carried in an ark. God does no longer need to be carried in an ark, but he is in the person of Jesus. This is the king whose kingdom will reign forever. Hosanna to the true son of David. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked this question, who is this? Who is this? And with the city, we asked this morning, who is this Jesus? Who is this man? And here is the truth. David was a man after God's own heart. But Jesus is God's heart. I'm going to say that again. David may have been a man after God's own heart, but Jesus is God's own heart. He is the promised and coming king. The presence of God has has entered into creation and is entering into the city of kings. And he is the one to come to bring salvation. Hosanna to the true son of David. This is is Jesus. John 1.18 says that no one has ever seen God. But the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Jesus is who God looks like. The word here for closest, other translations say he is, he is at the Father's side. He is in the arms of the Father. He is in the bosom of the Father. He is the very heart of the Father. He reveals God. He reveals Yahweh. The Greek word exegeo means to to explain God, to show us what God is truly like. When when God opens his chest cavity, uh, Jesus walks out. He is the heart of God. And this is the man, Jesus of Nazareth, who enters Jerusalem humbly on a donkey as the anointed king. But this isn't going to go the way that, that David would have wanted it to go or expected it to go. It didn't, it's not going to go the way the Jews of the day expected it to go. It wouldn't even go the way that we would write it if we were writing this story our, ourselves. 
You see, the expectation on Jesus was that he was going to come and set up an eternal, earthly, physical kingdom to rule over the the, the nations of the earth and rule over Israel and to reestablish God's reign, to conquer through violence, to overthrow the Romans who've been oppressing the Jews. And, And he didn't do that, but he did come to conquer, not in the way that any would have guessed. And we'll see in the days ahead leading up to Easter, that he didn't conquer the Romans, but he died at their hands, unexpected. He didn't set up a kingdom that strives to rule the earth, but one that serves and loves it. He didn't conquer earthly enemies, but instead conquered sin, death, hell, and Satan. He didn't set up his kingdom with power, but with self-sacrificial Love, this is the way of Jesus. This is the way of the true son of David. And though we know that the journey that led to the cross and his death is not the end of the story, come back next week if you've never heard the end. But it is these very things, that that, that in these things, Jesus fulfills the covenant, expresses the covenant that God had made with David. He lived out, Jesus lived out his calling faithfully. He, in union with the Father and the power of the Spirit, he gave both his life and his death for others, for us. And with his final breath, these are his words, the legacy words that he left. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Beautiful. We could learn a lot from Jesus in this moment. But here's the thing. These words are not original to Jesus. This is a direct quotation, a a cry from the heart of time spent in the word, memorizing the word of God from Psalm 31, a psalm that is written by King David. Father, into your hands I commit my Spirit, the way, the, the way of Jesus, his kingdom can be summed up in these words, in surrender. It is in a surrender and dying to ourselves that we find purpose and meaning. It is through dying to ourselves that we take hold of a legacy that is beyond ourselves, larger than ourselves, a legacy that God has for us, not anything that we can make up on our own. And so... Will you be someone this morning? Do you want to be someone this morning who is after God's own heart? Who is after Jesus Christ and his kingdom in your life? And if so, what what might that look like? What what is the answer to that? We know the answer. To chase after Jesus is to live into a life of discipleship as his follower, as his apprentice, as one who would learn to be like him, to obey him, to follow him around. It's allegiance to King Jesus in a life of discipleship. And if we choose this way of life, then I'm going to say something pretty bold. I think it's possible to live a legacy greater than that of King David, that our stories could be greater than that of King David because we serve a king greater than King David. We serve King Jesus. 
And we don't have to bring the presence of God in an ark to Jerusalem. We have the presence of God with us here and now. It is the gift from Jesus and the Holy Spirit that empowers us and can do things beyond anything that we can ask or imagine. But what might this look like in your life? Where do you start? Practically. I think it begins with the question asking, what are your expectations for life? What are your hopes for your legacy? What are the things you long for, dream for, the the things you want more than anything else in this world? Maybe, Maybe they're godly things. Maybe they're, you know, sinful things. Maybe they're these just somewhere in the middle. What are the things that drive your life? You take those things and you crucify them. You lay them down at the cross in front of King Jesus. Because this life is not about the legacy that we can create for ourselves, but the It is about surrender and submission. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And this is the beauty of the gospel, of the good news. The paradox of the Christian life is that in dying we are given new life, that we are resurrected and empowered. What is God's desired legacy for your life? That needs to become the question we start with. That we need to lay down and surrender the other things, even the good things. That in his grace, if we lay them down, he will pick them back up and make something even more beautiful in and through us for the sake of his kingdom. I, uh, in, in the spring of 2012, I took my first pastoral position. It was part-time in Clinton. I spent about 10 years there. But the first couple of years of pastoral ministry were incredibly ups and downs for me. It's challenging. But one of the biggest challenges was, and this is probably some of this youthfulness and, and some you know, arrogance and some zeal, but, but I just at every turn, I'd see the things that are wrong in the world and especially in the church, in leaders, in staff members, in congregation members who, who they didn't look like Jesus. And though I had a measure of self-control to not just bowl in a child's shop, just go around telling everyone that, I was driven by the idea that, it, that I needed to fix these things, that, that it was the legacy, the calling on my life was to fix these things, to fix these people, to point them in the, like, this is not how things should be. And it was around 2018 where I just, I hit a wall and I, I had a significant season of burnout and I just said, God, I can't do this anymore. And I was just so consumed by the need to fix and, and the need to save. And I just, I cannot be the Savior, nor am I meant to be the Savior, because we serve the Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not my job to fix people. It's not my job to save people. It's my job to be faithful, to lay down expectations, dreams, fill in the blank. And simply be faithful what God has put right in front of me. And that's been a really hard lesson to learn. But, but one kind of guide, there's a prayer. It's called the Serenity Prayer. Some of you, especially if you're in a recovery community, are probably familiar with it. It's by Reinhold Niebuhr. And it, it goes like this. And I think it just grounds us this morning in where I think we, we need to be. It says this, God, grant me the serenity 
to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking as Jesus did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it. Trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life, supremely happy with you forever in the next. It is in surrender that we truly find our purpose, our calling, our fulfillment. And this is the hope for each of us, to aim for faithfulness and let God take care of the legacy. And so as we wrap up with the next just few minutes, here are three quick questions I want you to ask. If you're going to do anything, write down anything, write down these three questions. Spend, spend some time before God in, in Scripture and in prayer this week and just ask these questions about where might God be calling you to, to create a, a kingdom legacy in, in your life. The first one is this. What has the Father given to you? What has the Father given to you? If we're... If we're to surrender everything and commit our, our, our very spirit before God, we have to know what he has given to us. What are your gifts, your talents, your skills, your passions, even your, your, your personality, your experiences? What has the Father given to you? Every good and perfect gift comes from him. What has he given to you? Don't focus on the things that other people have that you wish you had. But what, what has God given to you? And how might you use those things for his kingdom? The second thing, where has the Father placed you? Where has the Father placed you? Dallas Willard says, God has yet to bless anyone except for where they actually are. God's blessing flows from the present moment. He is only ever present. He's never in the past or the future. He is with us now and always in the eternal now. If you want to live for him, you have to live with him now. Our dreams, our aspirations are so often future-focused. We're always trying to get there, but we're missing what God is doing here. Who is already around you in your spheres of influence? Where are the places you're already at? In your workplace and alongside your co-workers, in your neighborhood and, and your neighbors, the people you walk by on the, or drive by on the way to work, the, 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 the places you frequent, like the restaurants or the coffee shops, the, the hobbies, the, the people. Who are the people that God has placed? Where are you? Who are the people around you? And what might God be doing right in front of you, wanting you to step into his kingdom purposes here and now? Obedience and faithfulness are fruit that are only born in the here and now, not in the hopes and dreams of the future. And lastly, where has the kingdom not yet come? Where has the kingdom not yet come? As, as Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It implies that there are places and spaces that, that God's will is not being done, that, that his kingdom has not been built yet. And he is inviting us to consider, to prayerfully partner with him in the direction of those things. 
Friedrich Buechner says this, that calling, our vocation, the, the core drive of our life, it's the place where, where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. And when you find that space, that is where you are called, where the kingdom has not yet come. You know, we talk a lot in our, in our culture about building a, a career, having a, a career people, but it's, it's more important. What is God's calling on your life? Many people could do your job, but there is one unique calling on your life that, that, that God wants to live in and through you. Where has the kingdom not yet come? So as we wrap up this series on David, we, we turn our eyes to Jesus, to his king, to the only king who does not disappoint. Yes, David was a man after God's own heart. But the question for you, for us this morning is, will you also become known as someone who is after God's own heart, someone wholeheartedly after the one we know as Jesus and his present and coming kingdom? And how is he inviting you to participate in that this Easter season? If you do, I promise you that God will do far more in and through you than you could ever ask or imagine. There's a legacy he will build for you. You cannot even fathom. This is the goodness of God revealed in Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me this morning? Jesus, we thank you for your presence with us here and now. We ask that your spirit would fill us and convict us and prompt us in the direction of obedience, whatever step, small or large, in the direction of your purposes, in, in the direction of you. I pray that you would give us your heart for the world, your heart for our lives, your heart for our families and friends and, and for our community that we might collectively as a church be, be known as a church after your heart because we look and live and lead and love like you. May it be so. We pray these things in your name.